One of the things that we've been going through here lately in February has been uh, kind of a history of who we are as a church, what our vision is, our mission, our purpose. And today, I'd like to kind of build upon that and take us back to our heritage and find out why are we a, quote, Christian church rather than a part of a denomination like the Lutherans or the Baptist or the Methodist or the Presbyterian or the list goes on and on. So what makes us different from that? And, and hopefully we can, we can gain a good understanding of why this church came into existence. This week I googled churches in Union, Missouri, and in response, the all-powerful Wizard of Oz, I mean, the internet gave us this answer. They, they, they put a map together and showed where the churches are in, in Union, Missouri. It lists about 20 of them all together. Uh, there may be some that Google has not seen yet, but they may be flying under radar or whatever. Uh, but 20 churches here in Union, Missouri. That, that's interesting that we have that many churches here in this small of a community. And so I, I began to wonder, why are there all these different flavors of churches? What makes them unique to each other? Um, and, and, and so what happens here? And I began to think, okay, well, how many people are in Union, Missouri? And so I went online again, and I found the World Population um, Review website, and it told us that currently there are approximately 12,554 people who live inside the city limits of Union. And then I began thinking, hey, now that's interesting. If that's accurate, and if there are 20 churches, I wonder if we shared those people equally, how many people would be in each church? And it came down, if my mathematics are correct, to about 628 people per church. I don't think any of us are near that. So it means that there's, there's still a lot of work to be done to reach our community to make a difference in the lives of the people here in Union. I mean, just look at this. I mean, even if we had 268 people here on a Sunday morning, that's just barely scratching the surface. That doesn't even talk about all the outlying people outside of that city limits. So really, how do we make a difference here? Through the years, the church has had its ability to increase in its evangelistic efforts, and to decrease as well. There's always ups and downs, and this church has, has impacted the same way with its increase and its decrease through the years. When it began back in 1930, it began with a small group of people, about 30 so in number, and then it began to grow and grow and grow, and then there are times when it went down, there are times that it went up, and there's times it went down. And, and the same thing can be said about most of the churches in our community, but it's 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 what is it that makes us unique? And so I thought, okay, here we go. Let's do a little bit of a study about our heritage and share with you. Some of you may not have an idea of why we call ourselves the first Christian church. It's not that we're the first that makes us superior or a priority above that. The first has nothing to do with our opinion of ourselves. All it has to do is that the, as a Christian church in union, we're the first one that was, went by that name First Christian Church. All right? There may be First Methodist or First Baptist or First... I mean, there's all kinds of first out there because it means that in that community, this was the first of these churches that was laid. Our church is a part of what has come to be known as the Restoration Movement. You may not be familiar with that idea, but I want to share with you some of the things about this movement. At the onset of the movement, there was a spiritual revival that was taking place all around the world. It was called the Great Awakening. And some would say that this restoration movement was almost like a second Great Awakening that was taking place here in America. 
And so I, I want to share with you a little bit of where we come from. You see, this, the, the people who were establishing this Christian church, I believe they were honest people, honest men, who sought to go back and restore the church to the way it was and its primitive understanding that was found in the Bible. And they just want to get back to, to the Bible type of church rather than all the divisions that were out there. They, they were trying to seek a truth which was accord with godliness, as Titus 1.1 says. And so in the early 1800s, this restoration movement, these Christian churches, churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, it just exploded. Uh, it, it, it just unbelievable growth was taking place during the 1800s. This period gave birth uh, to, to such preachers like Barton W. Stone, um, Raccoon John Smith, uh, James O'Kelly, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, and there were many others. But I want to take a look at a few of these guys and where they came from, their background and their faith, and what motivated them to become this unifying movement called the Restoration Movement. They wanted to restore the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as Jude 3 makes indication of. And they were, they were eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So they wanted also to be a unity movement as well, as Ephesians 4.4 says about the church. So let's take a little walk through history. And, and I want to share with you some of the things that took place to get us to where we are today. The restoration isn't always an easy task. If any of you have ever bought an old house and you figure, let's, let's get this back to its original beauty and its masterpiece of how it was created and crafted and, and all that, you'll discover that it's not as easy as you might have thought it would be. And restoring the church is not an easy thing either. I mean, there's always those things that when you pull off the, you know, the drywall inside and the sheetrock is covering stuff that are hidden and you discover things in there that are like, oh, that's got to be redone. And so there's always that extra work. And I think the church is the same thing. The more we try to get back to who we ought to be in Christ, we discover that it's filled with people like me and like you that maybe we have little edges that are rough, maybe some things need to be worked on to get us back to where we need to be. But the, these men, they started this movement in the late 18th century and the early 19th century here, and they, they determined that it was necessary for people of faith to return to the pattern of the New Testament church and what is founded in Scripture rather than what they perceived when they looked around them in their community and saw the different churches that were there. And they wanted to go back and, and to have their faith and their teaching and their practices and the form of who they were solely based upon Scripture. They sought out biblical authority for the plan of the church's organization, the salvation, evangelism, communion, and, and worship, and everything that goes into making up a church. Let's look at what the Bible has to say. So we need to take note of some of the chief features of this restoration plea. First of all, there was this aspect of the authority of Scripture. The idea that the New Testament and the New Testament alone as the only rule of faith and practice for Christians. That's all we needed to look to was the Bible itself and use the New Testament to say, here's how a church is supposed to act. We might not agree, or we might agree that, that it's kind of an odd statement, I think, that we would say, well, why aren't they doing what the Bible says to begin with? Well, as the church began to grow through the years, man and his ideas would begin to infiltrate and his opinions 
would go and take over the church and its structure. For years, that developed into what we call the Roman Catholic theory of church. And in the Roman Catholic history, what began to take shape was that the authority of the Pope or the bishops and those who were in leadership, their authority somehow even was not even equal to, but at times superseded even the Bible itself. And the church doctrine became more important than Scripture. And so in history, we would see that the churches were teaching their church doctrines and their catechisms, but really not teaching really what the Bible was saying. And so there were a lot of people of the Protestant Reformation that we have to go back in the 16th century during the early 1500s. Men like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus and Martin Luther and John Calvin, and the list goes on and on, men that were saying, hey, something is not right within the church, and let's get it back to where it needs to be. And so the Reformation took place, and there was a lot of disassociations because these guys were trying to speak against an authority that was man-made rather than biblical. And so we had different denominations that were beginning to form through the years. So this restoration, going back to the authority of Scripture, does away with man-made rules and tests of faith and fellowship. And it had at its core what these reformers were trying to do. The second feature is this, that Christ would be the only creed. Now, you'll, you'll understand that as denominationalism began to go and Protestantism began to come out from the Catholic faith and form their churches and trying to do some re- reforming or restoring the church itself, they began to initiate with creeds. And so creeds were very important to help us understand whether or not we're believing the same thing. And that's all it was. They were trying to take Scripture and saying, okay, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I believe this and I believe that. And they're pulling out of Scriptures, and they made them a test of fellowship. The creeds, you had to be able to be in agreement with the creeds that were established in order to be a part of that church. But this restoration movement said, we're not going to accept creeds any longer. All we want to do is accept what is in scriptural. And if we could find a creed in scripture, it would be this out of Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. When Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say I am? And Matthew responds by saying that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that would become the only creed that this movement would adopt would be Christ, that he is the son of God. Now, It's for this reason that many ministers of the Restoration Movement have frequently begun to use the slogan, no creed, but the Christ. But creeds were very important to the church. And they're not necessarily wrong. They're good because they help us understand these are things to believe about God. But this movement wanted to go back to Christ being the only creed. The third feature is this, the New Testament church. They wanted to go back and see what the church was like at its foundation and how it should still be the same even as time has gone by. And so the restoration of all the ordinances and and the life of the apostolic church means removal of all man-made innovations and every practice which cannot be fully sustained by the Scripture. So if you're doing something in our practice of church that's not in the Bible, then why are we doing it? They wanted to get back to doing just simply what the Bible laid out as a formation and the practice of the church and the scriptures. 
And so they want to go back and restore that. Now, early in that movement, a couple of, of, of preachers, father and son, by the name of Campbell, <clears throat> on the basis that they could not find scriptural support for infant baptism, which seemed to be a very common practice in their day, they went to the Bible and they looked for that, but they could not see infant baptism. And so they went into what they classified as a believer's baptism. When you had the understanding and the capability of, of making a choice, then you would choose to, to surrender yourself to God. And so they practiced believer's baptism. And since they could find no command for effusion or the pouring of water or the sprinkling, they went and understood that baptism in the Scripture appeared to be always being immersion, where it would be the full body submerged in water. They saw, no seed to control, no, they saw no need to control the Lord's Supper, which was being done in some of the churches. And so they would not serve communion unless you were a part of our church. And they would keep you from, from using that because you were not a part of that membership. In every situation that they discovered that they had questions about, they went back to the Bible and the Bible as, alone as a source of authority on how things were be done within the Scripture, within the early church. The fourth feature is this, Christian unity. This was key to the Restoration Movement. The whole idea was not to separate and start a whole new denomination. The idea was to try and get these denominations to become one together again because God does not want us to be divided. He wants us to be united. And so the unity aspect was powerful in this. As a matter of fact, they would, they would look at the Scripture and they would see this is exactly what Jesus wanted His church to be. He doesn't want us to be divided. He doesn't want us to, to have different roles and functions of this church and that church and another church, but to have a church that was common as a whole. And so they, they looked at John chapter 17 and verse 20 and 21. When Jesus was praying to his Father in heaven, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' aspect of unity is that I and the Father are one, he says. And what he's asking God is, I want the followers of me and you to have this same unity. I want us all to be one together. So that's what Jesus is asking, that his church would be one. Paul caps onto that, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, he appeals to the church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, and all these divisions there. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Well, no, he wasn't. Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Well, no, they weren't. It's Christ and Christ alone. It is His church so Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
And with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain what? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Denominationalism, sectarianism has become a problem and really it's a sin. Christ founded but one church. It is His body. And He is the one head of that body. And He wants us all to understand that. And somewhere down the road we began to become divided in our partisan ways based upon opinion, interpretation of Scripture. And through the centuries the church, instead of forming a union, what they've created is division. And it was starting right there with Paul when he's talking to them in Ephesus. What do you mean? Some of you are saying, well, hey, I'm a Pauline Christian. Others are saying, I'm a Paulison Christian. Others, I'm a Peter Christian. I'm a Jesus Christian. They're dividing even early on in the church. We cannot do that, Paul says. And Jesus wants us to be one. No matter how many church denominations are out there, we're all to be one church. And it's His church. And the only way to unite them permanently is for all of us to come back to the, the foundation, which is the Bible itself. Human schemes for unity will never prove effective because they do not go deep enough or touch the root of the matter, which is us, ourselves. We need to go back to the Word of God and to use it alone as our test of faith. Finally, they preached this gospel, and it was outlined in the New Testament, rather than the doctrines and the catechisms and all that were created by men through the years. They went back to just using the Word of God. The problem had been that the churches were beginning to preach their church doctrine and their catechisms, and they weren't going back to the Bible itself, but just teaching, this is what we believe, not why. So, these preachers that are going in and starting to just go back to the New Testament itself and preaching the church and the, and the good news that is there, they became known as restoration preachers. They were trying to restore the church. And eventually those restoration preachers united together and formed what they called as the restoration movement. Well, let's begin by looking back at some of the other historical things. What, where do we come from? We are a, we're a melting pot is what the Christian church is. We're a melting pot of people from all backgrounds, whether they be Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Catholic or wherever. Many people come from all these places and they want to come together and just be one united in Christ. There were some Methodist beginnings. So let's look at the Methodist background. Right, a restoration movement had its initial beginning in Ireland, not here in the United States, and over in England following the great awakening that was taking place. And they were wanting to go back and, and just kind of get back to the Bible itself. And, and finally it started in America about 1739 with a man by the name of James O'Kelly. Now James O'Kelly, he was a Methodist minister. and He believed in the New Testament form of church government and that he believed that the New Testament was the only book that we would go to for the finding the rule of discipline for a church. 
But when his own church, under the leadership of Coke and Asbury, decided that they were going to form an episcopy and an ecclesiastical structure, a hierarchy with bishops over churches and over groups and over areas, and moving up to a headquarters that would make decisions for the church, it was at that point that James O'Kelly said, I'm out. I just want us to be Christians only. And so he and some of his friends, they withdrew from that structure of the church and no longer were working as a, quote, denomination, but just a group of believers who called themselves the New Testament church and Christians only. They took that term Christians only because they were reading in the book of Acts, in the 11th chapter, verse 26, they discover in the city of Antioch, they were called Christians first, right there. So that's a little bit of the Methodist. Then there were some Baptist backgrounds because a lot of people came from the Baptist movement and, and moved into this restoration movement. There were two prominent preachers initially that were instrumental in the restoration movement. Uh, they were concerned with restoring the, what they said the ancient order of things. And they looked at Jeremiah 6.16 to find that. Because in Jeremiah, the Lord says, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. They wanted to restore things the way that God wanted it to be. And so that meant a return to the Bible for its doctrine, and its principles that were given to the first century church. Dr. Abner Jones, who was a medical physician at first initially, became a, a preacher within the Baptist denomination. But he became dissatisfied with all the different party names that were going on in the communities. He was unhappy with all the, the things that were, people were saying, well, you've got to accept this creed or this creed, or you've got to be a part of this denomination or that denomination. And so he says, we just need to abandon all those things and go back to the Bible itself and return to the doctrines and the practices of just the Scripture. Let the Word of God speak for itself rather than all the innovations of men. And so in his ministry... He entered in 1801, the preaching ministry, and he organized several churches in Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Finally, he settled on Haverhill, Massachusetts, and he preached over in Salem. But he was a man who was out as an evangelist starting churches. And in 1811, he attended a worship service at a church in Assinet, Massachusetts, and all they went by was Christian church. And so he went there, and he listened to their ideas. And as that, that evening went along, he discovered that that church had once been a Baptist church, but they just wanted to follow Scripture as well, rather than say, we have to be a denomination. And so they had become part of what was called at that point the Christian Connection. And so he continued to preach in Massachusetts and eventually in New York. And in 1833, he was invited to come back to that Christian church in Assinet, Massachusetts, and become their preacher. And he did. And he went and he preached there for a while. And then he decided it was time to go start new churches. So he went and started new churches in New Hampshire and in Massachusetts. He wrote a lot of things. And he was famous for his hymns and his music. And Abner Jones would write a bunch of songs for the churches to sing. And then he became an editor, and he would make a compilation of songs that the churches could sing and begin to put the books in and the hymnals together. He did that along with another minister by the name of Elias Smith. 
They began to publish multiple hymnals. But in his teachings, what kind of summarized the basis of his beliefs in support of this restoration movement, he began preaching that calling ourselves by these different names was not biblical and that we should abandon all those names. He taught that believers should be called the New Testament church and Christians only. Another Baptist preacher by the name of Raccoon John Smith, Raccoon was his, I guess, nickname that they gave him. He was baptized in the Baptist church back in 1799, early on, and eventually he became a preacher in 1808. And he began his work preaching at Bethel Baptist Church in Parmleysville, Kentucky. And as he was preaching in his ministry, it was in the spring of 1824 that he met a man by the name of Alexander Campbell, which we'll get into in just a little bit, who'd come to Kentucky to visit Raccoon John Smith, and another fellow that came by the name of Martin W. Stone. And we'll also look at him in a bit as well. But first, for John, uh, this meeting was a realization of this long-anticipated dream that he had had, that the church would become one. They, They would unite as the New Testament church and be Christians together. And after his meeting with them, they they laid the the groundwork for their faith to to begin this movement. It was after their meeting that he openly renounced the tenets of the Baptist denominational faith. And yet he still believed he was, quote, Baptist and tried to associate with them, but they would not have him for anything but a friend. They would not let him come into their meeting houses on a Sunday morning. They would not ever give him an opportunity to preach. And so he was rejected by them. And yet he still felt there was a need to bring this church back together. His teachings, the movement grew, and it culminated with the establishment of the new Christian church in 1831. Smith gave this unity sermon on New Year's Day in 1832, and Barton W. Stone happened to be there that day as well to hear him. And it was in Lexington, Kentucky, and the message resulted in bringing their groups together and forming what they would then call the Restoration Movement. Raccoon John Smith became recognized as one of the greatest evangelists of his day, baptizing thousands of people. And his ministry extended beyond just his community and into the state and eventually into the nation. He was a very prominent preacher back in the 1800s. But it's not just that they were coming out of the Methodists or the Baptists and trying to unite themselves together again. They were also coming from the Presbyterian Church, that great church of reformers that began back in the 1500s. And many of the preachers in our restoration movement initially were Presbyterian preachers. One such is a man by the name of Barton W. Stone. Stone, who who we talked about when he met Raccoon John Smith, He was first ordained in the Presbyterian Church in the Washington Presbytery in Kentucky. And his desire was to make sure that he led faithfully by the Word of God. And he wanted to move back to just the Scripture as well. And he was asked to adhere to the confessions of faith and the creeds of the Presbyterian Church. And his response was that he would only do that as far as they were consistent with the Word of God. Because the Word of God to him was the rule of faith. And so when he listened 
uh, to everything that was going on within his church and his denomination, four fellows, along with him, other preachers, they decided they were going to step outside of what the denominational structure was and maintain that they were still Presbyterians, and they created the Springfield Presbytery. But then they thought, but what we're doing still is creating another denomination somehow. So a year later, they disbanded and they, and they did away with that presbytery. Barton W. Stone had gone to visit a revival. And he began hearing some preaching and he saw some response and the call to go back to just the relationship with Christ and His Word. And he went back to his church in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, a little bitty church building that's, that you could fit the building in this room. And so it was a small structure, but yet he entered into a month-long revival. During that month-long revival, it has been estimated that somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people came to Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And the movement went like wildfire. And the call to just go back to the New Testament principles and to do away with party names and divisions and just try to bring the church as a whole back together was beginning with the Stone Movement. And Stone and others briefly, they decided we need to do something different here. And so they were calling people to become new lights. In other words, allow the Word of God to be like a new light in your life and shine forth the light of Christ And so initially they called their movement this New Light Movement. Others called them the Stonites. But they began establishing the Christian church, the churches of Christ. And when he met with Raccoon John Smith that that New Year's Day and heard that sermon, the two of them sat down and they decided we are going to unite together all of our churches. And they did away with party names and they just went by... Christian church, church of Christ, church of God, disciples of Christ. Those are words that came out of the Scripture itself. Now, they were teaching that the Bible was the only rule of faith, that all believers should be united and abandon all creeds, and the the Bible is a pattern for the New Testament church, and the believers should call themselves Christians only. And to publicize the, the disillusion of their denominational structure they wrote the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. And they expressed a desire for Christian union and to identify the Bible as the only standard for Christian faith and practice. They would go back to just using Bible names for Bible things. And so Barton W. Stone's preaching, it marked a turning point in this restoration movement in America. The Christian movement... Was, was moving forward and expanding through the western states and the pioneering areas of the United States rapidly. And his preaching was getting noticed. And so Alexander Campbell had come to Kentucky to, to hear and to, and to listen to Barton W. Stone. Barton w. Stone. We'll get into Alexander in just a minute. And Raccoon John Smith as well. And so they're, they're listening to these people who are calling for a union and, and a unity of the church and to getting back to the Scripture. And so they would, they would write in publicities and make their own newsletters and newspapers and magazines. And they would, they would publish in them their thoughts about restoring the church. 
Alexander Campbell published The Christian Baptist in 1823, and Stone began using The Christian Messenger in 1826. And through these publications they, publications, they began to bring their followers closer together and uniting them under Christ. And on November 9th, uh, 1844, Barton W. Stone died up in Hannibal, Missouri. He had a daughter that lived up there, and he was up there for a revival and got sick. I mentioned the two fellows, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, a father and a son. They came to America in the, in the early 1800s from Ireland. Uh, they were Presbyterians in their background, preachers, both of them. Uh, they both had gone to school to, to become preachers. And, but Thomas Campbell had come to America earlier on because of his health, and his doctor said it's probably better to go there. So he, he came to America, and he, he fit in with uh, churches in Pennsylvania, in the Washington, Pennsylvania area. And as he was there in, in Pennsylvania, he was being sent out as a preacher. And so he would go to different communities to preach. And all of a sudden, when he was sent to one community to preach, others that came here heard that there was a Presbyterian preacher there. They wanted to come and hear him. But the church he was preaching at would not permit them to come in and take communion because they weren't part of their membership. And he felt that was a problem. And he began to study, why is it that they were not permitted their part of the church? Even though they may not be part of this specific Presbyterian denomination, they're still Christians, should they not be able to take communion? But closed communion was. The same time his son Alexander in Ireland was preaching at a church, and the same kind of situation happened, that there was a closed communion service and he wasn't permitted. Because he wasn't a part of that church began to work in his mind. Why are we doing this? Why is this denominational stuff so struggling with people who just want to be Christians and, and unite together under Christ? Well, you have to understand a little bit about the history of the Presbyterian Church in, in England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. There was the Presbyterian Church, but then there came a point when the Presbyterian Church and its Episcopal leadership and ecclesiology decided that they would then appoint preachers for the churches. But some of the churches wanted to have their own preachers that they would choose. So there was a struggle, and there was a secession from the Presbyterian church. And so you had those who were the seceders, Presbyterians. And you had the anti-seceder, Presbyterians. And then the structure got a little bit more tight because it gave the authority to the mayor or the leader of the town and the community what type of Presbyterian church you were going to have. Was it going to be a seceder, or was it going to be an anti-seceder? And so the Burgesses made those decisions. Well, some people didn't like the mayor making the decision on what type of church you were going to have, and so they were anti-Burger, and you had the Burger, Presbyterian. But then you had, to throw all this into the mix, another group of people who wanted to go back to the Scripture itself and be enlightened by the Scripture, so they were the new lights. Now, you put all these together, and you could actually have a Presbyterian church in England that was a seceder burger Presbyterian church, or a seceder anti-burger, or an anti-burger anti-burger anti-seceder, and then you throw the old light or the new light into this, and you really have no idea which faith that you're a part of. And yet they're all supposed to be a part of the universal church of Christ, are they not? But by the divisions and by the sectarianism, it got to where they were not welcoming or loving each other. And so the, this restoration movement has been characterized by several key principles that the Campbells lay out. 
Christianity should not be divided. Christ intended the creation of one church. Creeds divide, but Christians should be able to find agreement by standing on the Bible itself, from which they believe all creeds are but human expansions of const- or constrictions. Now, you have to understand, a creed was established so that we would know what we believe. It's a kind of a summary of the Bible itself. And to be able to have an agreement on things, do you believe this? And if you don't believe this, then maybe you need to look for another church. But it was a way to have an agreement together. And so creeds began as a very good thing, but eventually by the innovation of men became a very negative thing where it was bringing bipartisanship within the church. Ecclesiastical traditions divide, but Christians should be able to find common ground by following the practice as best as it can be determined by the New Testament. That names of human origin... Those divide, but Christians should be able to find common ground by using biblical names for the church, such as Christian Church or Church of Christ or Church of God, or rather than using the terminology of, of Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, Old Light, such as Thomas Campbell. He was an Old Light anti-Burger seceder Presbyterian. These principles made up the basis for this movement. Therefore, the church should stress only what all Christians hold in common and should suppress all divisive uh, doctrines that might be out there in practices. God wants His church to be one. So the Christian church is trying to find a way to restore the primitive church that's in the New Testament rather than taking all the different partisan things that have gone on in the church through the history and let's say, let's get back to the Bible itself. Because the people in those churches, they don't need the division. It's not about whether you're Lutheran or Presbyterian or Catholic or or Baptist or whatever. People want to follow Christ. And so the Christian church and the restoration movement is a unity movement to help all Christians come together rather than being divisive. A number of slogans began to appear in this restoration movement which were intended to express how some of the distinctive themes of the movement. And these include, where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where they are silent, we're silent. Another would be the church of Jesus Christ on earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. This was another one that that they really put forward that we are Christians only, but not the only Christians. So, okay, the Christian church is Christians only, but not the only Christians. Are we saying that there may be people in the Baptist church that are Christians? Yes. Are we saying that there might be people who are in the Lutheran church that are Christians? Yes. We, however, are Christians only, not the only Christians. In essentials, this movement says there is unity. In opinions, liberty. And in all things, love. Another slogan was there is no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love, no name but the divine. Another one would be simple. Just do Bible things by Bible, in Bible ways. Or... You call Bible things by Bible names. Alexander Campbell, he began to hold many debates across the country 
We're trying to get people to move back to just using the Bible itself as a foundation for our faith. And he wrote many volumes of books and and, and newsletters and articles to to try and help bring back the the New Testament faith that once existed in in the church. He was instrumental in this movement for restoring it to Christianity and Christianity alone rather than denominational structures. And it would be impractical really to list all the things that went on in this early movement of the Restoration Movement. But you look at some of the things these fellows did and some of the sermons that they preached, such as Alexander's Sermon on the Law or the, the Declaration and Address that was written. Alexander Campbell, he advanced the cause through Christ through a paper that he would write called the Millennial Harbinger. And in it, he contended for the, to defend the faith through his entire life by just using the Bible itself rather than any other catechism or doctrine out there. Another Presbyterian that, that came into play was a man by the name of Walter Scott. When Walter Scott came to America around 1818, he was already a, a preacher. And he found trouble defending his faith, and he abandoned his faith that same year when he came to America. And all he wanted to do was to confess himself to be a Christian and a Christian only. And he began to preach the restoration of the New Testament church and doctrine, apart from all these other guys. This, these are things that are happening in different parts of the country and even into Great Britain as well. Walter Scott is one of the four key leaders of this restoration movement, along with Barton W. Stone, Thomas Campbell, and, and Alexander Campbell. He was successful as an evangelist, and he held uh, to, to stabilize this, these movements together and what was then separating from the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Methodists and whatever. He was trying to unite them together and say, let's just be Christians. Walter Scott's teaching this. He taught that, first off, by grace, faith is necessary to change the heart. That repentance is required to change one's life. Baptism is commanded to change one's state. Remissions of sin is granted to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And the Holy Spirit is provided to help the believers to live the Christian life. And as the assurance of being the sons of God. In his ministry, he moved to Pittsburgh. And he was baptized by immersion and became an active member of a very small congregation that was led by a fellow Scotsman by the name of George Forrester. So Forrester helped Walter Scott to develop his understanding of going back to the Scripture and going and just using Scripture things, what the Bible teaches, rather than the innovations of men. That congregation in Pittsburgh was influenced by the movement that was laid also by the Haldane brothers of the Presbyterian movement trying to restore Christianity back to the New Testament. And they rejected the authority of creeds and denominational ecclesiastics. And they also went to providing the Lord's Supper as an open to anybody who saw themselves as a Christian every Sunday morning. They recognized believer's baptism rather than infant baptism. And so Scott and his family then moved to Ohio after connecting with all this. He began to evangelize in 1827. He was hired by Alexander Campbell to be an evangelist to go out and start churches. Within three years, Walter Scott had baptized over 3,000 people and established multiple churches across Ohio. At that time, the Campbells were associated with the Mahoning Baptist Association And a number of churches were being started. 
And in 1839, Scott and the Campbells, they left the denominational structure altogether and they began to just pursue the Christian church. Scott continued to preach, but he began to focus his shifting. And in 1852, his family moved to Kentucky where he established a school for women. And he's famous for preaching about things that concerned the New Testament church, primarily coming out of the book of Acts chapter 2 and looking at the church and what they did there and following the apostles' doctrine. You see, our church here in Union, the first Christian church, is a part of a movement that just wants us to get back to using the Bible as its rule of faith. And it's open to anybody and everybody. We don't recognize that we're the only ones going to heaven. Because there are many people out there who are faithfully serving Christ and doing their best to do that. We don't close our communion off so that others who walk in cannot participate if they're not a member here. It's open to all who believe because it's His table to invite and not ours. We want to unite the churches in union Wouldn't it be great if all 20 churches in union, or however many there are, if we together would form a unity and that this movement would shake and change and transform the entire community in which we are, and that maybe the 628 people would be in each church every Sunday morning, or more so, as long as we're teaching the Word of God and it alone. I'm glad to be a part of this church and the movement that has brought us here. In 1930, when this church began, it began with a small group who just wanted to get people back to the Word of God itself and allow them to be Christians only. That's who we are. That's our heritage. And hopefully that is also our future. Would you stand with me as we... I have a song. Make that foremost in everything you do. And let's not let the party names of whatever divides divide any longer. Let's be one in Christ. One body. Because there is one Lord and one Savior.